In those days, a decree went out from Caesar, and so everyone went to their town to be registered. Joseph went up from Nazareth to the city of Bethlehem along with Mary. And when they were there, it came time for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloth, and laid him in a manger. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the field at night and keeping watch over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born. For you who is the Messiah, the Lord. Good morning, Riverview. How are you guys today? Uh, My name is Young, and I am our multi and next-gen director here at Riv. Uh, If you're new here, I hope that you're able to connect with someone, or at least we're able to get a nice, warm cup of coffee to enjoy uh, during the service. Uh, As we continue in our series here leading up to Christmas, uh, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56, and I'm going to uh, continue reading uh, and uh, follow up essentially from what our friend Lucy read this morning for us. Um, So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in verses uh, 46 through 56. Uh, for the remainder of our time this service. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. Let me read that for us today. This is what it says. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely, From now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their heart. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. If I can flip this page... Hmm, I guess we're just going to end with that verse. Okay, verse 53, here we go. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her, that is Elizabeth, about three months, and then she returned to her home. Would you join me in praying uh, as we jump into the word? Father, we are so grateful. Grateful that you love us so dearly. Grateful that you did not leave us to the effects of sin, 
Satan, this world, the flesh. Lord, you, you gave us a different way to follow, one that would actually satisfy the desires of our hearts, our longest, our deepest longings, Lord, of our souls. And you, you did that by coming into your creation and dying on the cross, resurrecting from the grave and ascending to the right hand. We thank you, Jesus, for that. I pray, Father, that as we dive into your word this morning, that your spirit would illuminate the text to our eyes, to our hearts, that we would have ears to hear your word, that whatever we may be carrying into uh, this day, into this service, that, Lord, we would just bear it all at the foot of the cross, knowing that you are so good and loving and so merciful to take that for us. We thank you for that. Thank you for the hope in Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So um, over the last several years, a, what some would call a phenomenon um, in our society and to what other people would call just a natural shift in our society occurred within the wider Western and particularly the uh, more uh, evangelical uh, world. And that word can be summed up with the word uh, deconstruction. Maybe you've heard of that. Borrowing from the term developed by uh, philosopher Jacques Derrida, Christians who found faults and difficulties within the wider Western church, things like abuse of power and authority, things like misogyny or pastors falling from ministry or what, what have you, uh, among other several troubling issues, these Christians, they contextualized this concept of deconstruction uh, to their Christian faith and ultimately parted ways with the church or from Jesus altogether. In 2016, thus, was birthed the title Exvangelicals. Maybe you've heard of that. An exvangelical is a social movement of people um, who have left evangelicalism and the greater or the broader white evangelical church. And one of the ideas I've heard countless times from my friends who have undergone some form of deconstruction or strangers, I mean, you can look it up on TikTok or Instagram or whatever social media app that you choose. If you type in the word deconstruction, you'll find different stories of people who have left the church or their faith altogether. Um, and they've identified as being part of this ex-evangelical movement uh, where one of the main tenets of it, if you could say, is this idea that I don't need to be fixed. I don't need to be, I, I'm not broken at all actually. That is one of the main tenets of those who have deconstructed. And this of course comes from a place of emotional damage and trauma caused from within the church that needs to be acknowledged. Because regardless of where you may stand on and with this idea of deconstruction or reconstruction, evangelical or ex-evangelical, there is actually some credibility in some of the critique the modern day church has faced. Again, namely in this issue that I just brought up about being broken or needing to be fixed. The tension, if I can explain that in my own words, is that the tension in the biblical worldview that we face is that if we are 
beautifully and wonderfully made, fully in the image of God, then how could we ever call someone broken? How could we ever call someone broken? We can simply write this tension off by responding, well, well, you know, it's because of sin. If you follow more of a reformed tradition, we would call that you know, total depravity. You're totally depraved that, that because of sin, you cannot even see the grace of God because of our brokenness. But I believe that honestly, if you just write it off as just saying, well, it's just sin, uh, it's a bit lazy, intellectually lazy, theologically lazy, because it is too lazy of a response to what is now an emotionally charged tension many young people feel as they leave the church in droves. The tension of being fully made in God's image, beautifully and wonderfully made as the psalmist writes, and yet contending with the reality of our brokenness, yes, caused by sin, is one of the things that is so critical to address. And I'm gonna kind of lay this out in three ways. Uh, there's three options that you can kind of process this, okay? Three ways that you can process this. Beauti- one, the first one is this, that you are beautifully and wonderfully made by God in the fullness of his image, and you actually don't need to be repaired at all. That you, your humanity is intact, The second way you can process this tension is that that you're actually broken beyond any repair. FUBAR, as they say. And I'm not going to explain what that acronym means. So if you know what it means, you know what it means. That you're absolutely broken beyond any repair and that all is lost. So you might as well live free, live fast, and die hard. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Or the third tension. Thanks, Noel. The third tension, or third way to process this tension, is that we are actually beautifully and wonderfully made in the fullness of God's image, but we also acknowledge that there is something wrong out there in the world, and something wrong inside here. And so we try to resolve that tension some way, somehow. You mix this tension in with the rising hyper-individualism that is sweeping across Western society and you get where we are at now. A society with what may seem like an infinite amount of religions and worldviews, practices and ways to try and resolve this tension of being beautifully made in the image of God with dignity and humanity. And yet, understanding that there's something wrong about this world. Some people try to dissolve this tension by practicing yoga. Some people try yoga in a hot room called hot yoga, <laughs> which is it's great, by the way. I, I love hot yoga. Um, some try mindfulness. Some try meditation. Some might smoke an occasional joint or a blunt. Some try a cold plunge. Name your modern-day therapeutic medicine to resolve this tension. But for those who would rather find a way to resolve this felt tension of a good and beautiful identity and a deep and profound struggle to live because of sin, the passage we read this morning offers a beautiful story of two cousins, two women, who God uses so powerfully to the point where even one births the savior of the world. Look at verse 46 and 49. 
through 49. It says this, and Mary said, my soul, it magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. Here is Mary, a young girl from a rural city, low in social status and class, and in her humble condition, as she says, God looks at her with favor. And her conclusion is that God is savior. Let that kind of sink in. God is savior. And that God's name is holy, which is an idiom in, in, in a way to say that that means his reputation is holy. He's known to be holy. And so Mary is speaking a deep theological truth about God and about people. That people are in fact in need of saving. And so God saves. That God's holiness moves him to save and use those, get this though, who are humble and lowly, not the proud. A couple months ago, I flew out to San Diego and uh, I got to enjoy a couple days, uh, a weekend, uh, with a handful, like 30 to 40 other next-gen leaders and ministers from uh, different states in the U.S. I was representing our state of Michigan um, with this group. And it was amazing. It was an amazing time out in San Diego. And one of the guys who was leading this trip out west uh, said something that I found to be profoundly refreshing. He's, it was like, kind of like, when he said this, I felt like disarmed. I felt like all the tension in my shoulder could kind of just like melt away. Um, so imagine this, okay, you're in a room full of 30 to 40 next-gen leaders, where the youngest is probably in, you know, their like upper 20s. You know, most of us are in our 30s, maybe a few in their younger 40s. Uh, what I'm trying to get at is the, the amount of ego in that room was high, okay? <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say, okay? Like, like, yeah, that's just, you get young leaders in that room, whoo, like ego through the roof, okay? So my friend Grant, who's, who's leading this thing, he says this. He says, we are all the people who other people go to when they need help. We all have a bunch of stories that we could share about God doing amazing things in our ministries and churches. But before we start this weekend, I have one request. And this is the phrase that he said that just put me at ease. He says, leave your cape at the door. Grant understood that leaders of all people, leaders in the church no less, tend to be the ones who ultimately succumb to pride, to ego, to arrogance, to you fill in the synonym. And the phrase has stuck with me ever since because uh, this phrase of leave your cape at the door has stuck with me ever since because I don't think this is just a posture for leaders to carry, but all Christ followers to carry in their everyday life. It's a posture for all people who have been saved by the unconditional love and the grace of God from God who is Savior. Because if you're in this room this morning, you understand and you have experienced the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. And that you know that the only prerequisite of sorts, it's not your good deeds, 
It's not your way to work to, to, towards God's grace. The only prerequisite of sorts is a posture of humility to say, I need help. It's a posture of dependency to say, I need help from beyond myself. I need someone to save me and to change the course of my life. And that is the humility I believe Mary is alluding to and talking about here. The holiness of God, his reputation again. His name is holy. His reputation, as Mary says, is shown in his decision to save and use those who are humble and not proud. And if you continue reading, you'll see this theme in the next three verses as well. Verse 50 through 53, please read with me. It says, his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from the thrones. Wow, what a phrase. And exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. God, who according to Mary is Savior, the mighty one, who is holy, is also a merciful God, but only to those who would show fear, or another word is reverence and awe to him. He is merciful to the ones who are willing to see and acknowledge that God is God and that they are not. To show fear, reverence, and awe is to acknowledge that what you are seeing and experiencing is amazingly different, that you are utterly captivated by how different it is. The holiness is so great and grandiose that you're like, what is that? You're utterly captivated. And Mary continues this theme by explaining two actions of God out of his holiness. Please see this. She points to his judgment and his mercy in this passage. The judgment of God moves him, he scatters the proud, he toppled the mighty from their thrones, and he sends the rich away empty-handed. But he extends mercy to who? The lowly. He exalts the lowly, the humble, the needy, and he satisfies the hungry with good things. And he does so out of his mercy. Mary understands, please don't miss this, Mary understands God in such a deep and profound way, and it can be summed up with this, that God the Savior, the Mighty One, the Holy One, is perfectly just. Because, if you understand this theological truth about justice, is that perfect justice holds both judgment and mercy in perfect tension. The perfect savior is the one who can discern who desires saving and who does not, who receives mercy and who receives judgment. I might be saying something here that some of us might be at odds with, but I'll say it regardless. Um, <clears throat> one of the most troubling things personally for me over the last uh, that have been added to the cultural moment over the last few years has been uh, another kind of buzzword or phrase, which is cancel culture. 
Um, it's been a troubling phenomenon that's happened uh, over our, uh, within our society. And it's kind of died out a little bit, I think, at least on my social media feeds. I'm not saying like everyone getting canceled, um, but I don't know, maybe yours does, I don't know. Um, but the ghost of cancel culture, I think, at least exists in the ethos of our society today. And though I might disagree with the, the overall idea of cancel culture, I understand where it comes from. Um, it, 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 you know, it comes from this place where you know, the people who have abused power, for instance, um, they must face justice of some sorts for their actions. And what better way to do that, according to cancel culture, than to what? You destroy their reputation, right? That's what cancel culture is. You destroy their entire reputation. It's a cultural phenomenon that seeks to find justice with minimal mercy and the ultimate amount of justice. Okay, let me say that again. Cancel culture is a a mode, as a means to seek justice with the most minimal amount of mercy and the ultimate amount of judgment. And unfortunately, cancel culture, for example, is something that is so different from the perfect justice that God enacts in the world, in this world, and in eternity. God, as the perfect Savior, must have a perfect understanding and execution of justice. And we see hints of this as Mary's song comes to a close in the following verses. 53 through 56, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her about three years, and then she returned home. Let me make this very clear to us. If you haven't picked this up yet, Mary, she, as a young woman in a rural city, she knows her scripture. She knows her Bible. She knows the traditions that her ancestors walked in in the way of God. In fact, she knows her scripture so well that this entire passage that we just read actually parallels Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. If you actually read that, 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10, go look it up on your own, I'm not gonna read it. It parallels that perfectly. So Mary, knowing her scripture, she recalls God's promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, let me read that for us. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The verse that we just read, verses 53 to 56, she understands God's faithfulness to her people. Out of his own mercy, God remembers Israel from Abraham and his descendants, and he helps them. Do you realize what Mary is pointing out here? She is pointing out to the dozens, if not hundreds of times that Israel has screwed things up as God's chosen people. But despite all the mess ups, God upholds his covenant to Abraham where he says, all the people will be blessed through you. A few weeks ago, we went through uh, another title that Jesus has, which is the Son of Man. 
and we read the genealogy of Jesus found in the opening pages of Matthew. And that genealogy, if you see it in Matthew 1, it starts with none other than Abraham and it ends with none other than Jesus because that's his genealogy. If you didn't pick that up, okay? But it starts with Abraham. God upholds his covenant to Abraham or as Mary sings here, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants for a short time? No, forever. And thus Jesus Christ is born, saving the world from sin, Satan, and death. And God's plan of redemption is fully embodied in the perfect humanity of Jesus Mary, who is not dismayed or distraught by her supernatural pregnancy, would ultimately give birth to Jesus Christ of Nazareth in a lowly manger. And Jesus is known as the Savior, as Mary so rightfully calls God in the beginning of her song. And what I want to do for us with the remainder of our time is to share with you this morning how Jesus is the Savior of the world. The one whose mercy, whose God's mercy is channeled through. But we're going to work backwards. Because right now in this moment, currently, after Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, the mercy of God, we get to live in it because Jesus, he advocates for us. As the New Testament literature says, he prays on our behalf saying, Lord, would you, would you sustain their faith? the people who have pledged their allegiance to your ways. Jesus contends for us 24-7 while sitting at the right hand of God. But before his ascension, he resurrected from the grave. And he showed the power of God. When the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, in the Greek, it says, Gar estin dunamis theos eis soterion. Also in English, that means the power of God for salvation. And what is that? The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the driving engine of the gospel message, for without it, the gospel is rendered powerless. No resurrection, no gospel. Through the resurrection, we see the power, the saving power of God. It is, as some scholars say, the death of death. Which brings us to the actual death of Jesus. If I can help you recall Mary's deep understanding of what true justice is, the perfect tension of judgment and mercy. We see the justice of God Uh, perfectly on display on the cross of Calvary. On the cross where Jesus died lies the perfect intersection of God's judgment and his mercy. Because with Jesus as the perfect one, the holy one, the perfect sacrifice, being forsaken by God for the first time in all of eternity, where that's his judgment, on our behalf, relinquishes the need for our punishment of sin. His mercy, perfect judgment and mercy displayed on the cross. True salvation. But it is not just the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that saves us. It is the life of Christ that we can look to also for hints and notes and themes of salvation. 
Because in the life of Christ, we see the holiness of God lived out. And the life of Jesus, my friends, it is an invitation to a lowly and a spiritually hungry life. The life of Jesus is an invitation to experience the gospel as we live right now. It's an invitation to say, hey, the way that you're living right now, if you're addicted to name your your drug of choice, if you have an identity issue, if you're plagued with depression and anxiety and you, you struggle to find joy in this life, that you place your hope in the other things that this world says, hey, have you tried this out? You can find happiness and joy in your life. If you're tired of that life, the life of Christ invites you to say that there is another way, a better way to live. And Jesus lives that perfectly. And all he's saying is that the gospel is not just a, a golden ticket to heaven, but that you can experience life and life abundantly, as Jesus says, in the here and now. And the gospel is an invitation to experience that today. Not only when you die and stand before God. The life of Jesus is an invitation to salvation that you can feel and experience and live in now. Do you feel the tension of needing a savior? A prevailing idea of our modern mind today is that humanity does not need a savior. In fact, some go so far as to say that, hey, no one's coming. No one's coming, so go ahead and save yourself through whatever means you see fit. Do you feel the tension of knowing you are a person full in your humanity and yet acknowledging that there is some dissonance, there is some entropy and chaos, some sort of disruption in the equilibrium of what you think life should be like out there in the world and not just out there, but internally. Do you feel that tension? If that is you today, consider the invitation that Jesus has for you. Not just in his death, not just in his resurrection, not just in the current state after his ascension, but the invitation of Jesus' beautiful and perfect and humble and gentle life that he invites you into. But remember Mary's words, in order to accept that invitation, it is not to be accepted with a bold and a courageous heart, especially not a strong and proud heart, but it is with a gentle and a lowly and a humble heart that Mary states at the beginning of her song. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. It is the humble, lowly condition of the heart of the self that is required to come and accept the invitation of God, of Jesus, and of the Holy Spirit. Again, if you're here today, and you feel that dissonance, you feel that entropy, that chaos around you and inside of you, and you don't know, you've tried all the things out there to resolve that tension, would you consider the way of Jesus and following the way of God? Again, but to do that, you must come with a humble heart and posture. Mary acknowledges, and we'll close with this. 
Mary acknowledges that she needs a savior and concludes that God is the savior. But in her acknowledgement of needing a savior, she is not dismayed over that reality. Let me make that very clear. She acknowledges that she needs a savior, very counter to what our modern day way of thinking is like. She acknowledges that she needs a savior, but she's not dismayed over that reality. In fact, what does she say? My soul, it says, her soul magnifies the Lord and her spirit, it rejoices. Why? Because she understands that the God of Abraham is the perfect savior because he is perfectly just in his judgment and his mercy and is holy. And through that, she knows he is so trustworthy. He is so trustworthy that she can place her hope that he will be faithful to the covenant promise that he made to her forefather, Abraham. Would you be able to consider the way that Mary sees her need of a savior for your life today? We'll wrap up with this. One of our dear friends, Colleen Davenport, over in our Riv Kids team, she wrote this in her teaching to our kids. And, and let me just kind of step to the side here and say this. We have some of the best, if not the best, curriculum writers for our kids' ministry. Absolutely. That is 100% facts. 10 out of 10 would recommend. This is what Colleen writes, writes and wrote for what the kids are learning today. And I think it sums up God's heart as Savior toward his people and towards those who would be humble enough to submit to him. And for our church family here at Riverview, as as, as a family of God's people, we must reflect who God is in the people that we are becoming. And Colleen's synthesis of who God is and what he does, according to Mary, is spot on. And we'll end with this quote. She writes this. He shows mercy to families. He lifts up people who are not considered important. He fills those who are hungry. He helps his people. And he is kind and remembers his people. Let me pray that over us as we consider God as our savior, to become like him, to care for those who are lowly and on the margins, to help his people and to remember his people. Let me pray that for our church and we'll wrap up our time. Lord, what a, what a difficult thing. Because there's so many voices out there, Lord, that would lead us to be angry, to be divisive, to make it about an us versus them to say that we are the ones who are righteous and holy and saved and, and, and taken away from the, the crazy chaos of this world and you, 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 you guys can just live in your own way. Lord, may that be so far from our church family. Lord, may we, may we exemplify with excellence, with humility and gentleness, Lord, the heart posture that we carried when we first encountered and experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is one of, hum- of humility and gentleness and neediness and dependence. 
May we echo and reflect, Lord, the love and the care and the mercy you have for the people who are not seen in society, those who are on the margins, the ostracized, the quote-unquote losers of society, whatever that means, I pray that, Lord, you would move our hearts, Lord, to see those that the world would throw away because you saw us, Lord, in our sin, and yet you, you shined your mercy and your love on us. May our church become people like that, Lord. May Lansing know that Riverview is a church that is for the community, that is for the hurting, that this place is a home for those who just don't have it all together, and that they would meet and encounter the living God, the savior of the world. We thank you for Mary's theological insights, her love of scripture to just know it, so that we may understand more of your heart for us, Lord. We thank you for Christ, all that he has done. We pray this in your son's name, amen.